So, hello. I um welcome to um my readers and welcome fans of books and audiobooks. We are going to read The Little Brute Family. I like this book because they changed their names from something bad to something better. The Little Brute The Little Brute Family by Russell Hoban. Pictures by Lillian Hotel. And all right. And we are going to the next page. In the middle of a dark and shadowy loves woods lived a little family of brutes. They were there were Papa, Grandma, um Rodney, Ilona, and Aiden. In the morning mama cooked sand and gravel porridge, and the family snarled and grimaced as they spooned it up. And snarled and grimaced as they spooned it up. No one said please, no one said thank you, no one said how delicious, because it just, because it was not delicious. Baby Brute, how between spoonfuls. Brother and sister kicked each other under the table. And Mama and Papa made faces while they ate. After breakfast, Papa Brute took up a sack and went to gather sticks and stones. Mama stayed home to dump the furniture and bring the props and scold the baby. And brother and sister pushed and shoved and punched and pinched their way to school. In the evening, Mama... In the evening, Mama served a few sticks and stones and the family ate it with growls and grumbling. But then they groaned and went to sleep. That was how they lived. They never laughed and said delightful. They never smiled and said how lovely. In the spring, the little brutes made heavy kites that bumped along the ground that would not fly. In the summer, they flung themselves into the pond and sank like stones but never learned to swim. In the fall, they jumped into great piles of leaves and stamped on one another, yelling. In the winter, they leaped upon their crooked, clumsy sleds that took them crashing into snowbanks where they stuck head first and screamed. That was how they lived in the dark and shadowy woods. Then one day, Baby Brute found a little wandering, wandering lost good feeling in a field of daisies. And he cottoned in, a, in, in his paw and put it 
in his tiny pocket. And he felt so good and he, that he left me for Kyle Buckley. Hey, Boo. So good all afternoon. And his bowl was filled with stew. He said, thank you. Then the little good feeling flew out of his tiny pocket and hovered over the table, humming and smiling. How lovely, said Mama, without even feeling delightful, said Papa, forgetting to growl. Oh, please, said all the little skippers. Let it stay with us. And Papa smiled and said, All right. When Papa Brute went out for sticks and stones the next day, he found wild berries, salad greens, and honey. And he brought them home instead. And supper, at supper, everyone said how delicious, because it was delicious. And everyone said, please and thank you, and they never ate stick and stones again. Then the little good feeling stopped wandering and stayed with the little brute family. Alright. When springtime came, the, the little brutes made bright new kites that flew high in the sky. In the former they swam beautifully. In the fall they gathered gathered nuts and acorns. What the that and then that they roasted by cozy fire when winter came. And in the evening they sang songs together. The little good feeling stayed in the cave and never went away. Belongs to Reese family. Check. I have read this book. Don't miss Harry Cat and Tucker Mouse staring Harry. My mother said he was gone for good, but I thought if I wrote to Santa Claus. As soon as I wrote the letter, I went down to the post office to mail it so it would get there in time. Boy, there were about a million people standing in line and everything. And then there was a, all, all that Christmas music coming out of a big horn on the wall. Pretty soon I found the place in the wall where you put letters in. But it was too high up. So I went out again and I went around to the back of the post office. Where there were these big doors open and a man was carrying boxes out to a truck. There must have been a million boxes. I never saw so many. But there was nobody there but him. He was kind of tall and thin, his face was dirty, from where he kept rubbing his hands across it. He had freckles and his ears stuck out. I don't know how old he was. Pretty old. Twenty-five, I guess, like my father. He kept picking up these boxes and throwing them on the truck, and he didn't see me, so I yanked on his coat. Here's a letter, I said. The place out there where you're supposed to put it in is too high up. He was lifting this big box, and he stopped and looked at me. It was kind of a mad look. Then he looked down at the letter, and he made a noise like my father at the time he never saw the skate I left in the hole until he kind of slid downstairs on it. 
That's what I've been waiting for, he said. A letter to Santa Claus. He kind of will. It might interest you to know that we have sent out 143,000 pieces of mail in the past week. And there will be at least twice that much in the next few days before Christmas. This makes my day complete. I was glad he was glad, even if he didn't look so happy. He didn't take the letter, so I held it out again. Will it get there right away? I said. It's important. How old are you? He said. He still sounded mad. Six, I said. Well, five. What's your name? He said. Joe, I said. Look, Joe, he said. He sure looked like he was going to yell at me, but all of a sudden he didn't. Like my father the time I took his shaving soap to make some frosting for my mud mud pies. Joe, I can't take your letter, he said. Believe me, it won't go any place. I mean, Santa Claus has already left the North Pole, see? So he can't get any more letters. So just take it back to your folks. They'll take care of it for you. He didn't understand anything. Look, I haven't got folks, he said. I mean, I've got a mother, but she works all day in a store, and I have to stay with Miss Henderson next door all the time after I get back from school. That's what I wrote in the letter. I want my father to come home. Where'd he go? He looked at me kind of funny, like he was waiting for something. He sure was. He was sure dumb. He just went away, I said. He just got hurt in an accident, and then he went away. My mother said he won't ever come back anymore, but I want to surprise her. He's got to come back for Christmas on account of he promised I would get some marbles and a baseball glove and a football and an electric train. Last year I wasn't old enough, but I am now. The way he acted, you'd think he, he didn't hardly even listen to what I said. He didn't even say anything. He just kept on looking at me. And after a while, he kind of shrugged. Look, Joe, he said. He sounded real tired all of a sudden. I'm busy. I'm sorry. Go home, will you? I can't take your letter. Sure you can, I said. It's got a stamp on it. What's the matter with him anyway? He was starting to pick up all those boxes again, so I just put it on this table where there were about a million letters, and I walked out. I'll be back pretty soon, I said. Tomorrow, I guess there'll be an answer for... Tomorrow. I guess there'll be an answer for tomorrow, by sure. I, I could hardly wait, thinking how surprised my mother was going to be and everything. So the next day, as soon as the school bus let me out at the corner at noon, I ran down to the post office. There were some other people moving boxes around in this big room, so I finally just walked down the edge until I saw him in another little empty room. He was sitting on a box, eating his lunch. Did I get a letter yet? I said. I was kind of out of breath. He let out a big groan when he saw me standing there and kept right on eating his this big sandwich. His face was still dirty. He looked madder than ever. Pretty soon, he gave this big sigh like my father once when I cut up his pajamas for a Halloween costume. As a matter of fact, he said, a letter did turn up this morning addressed to somebody named Joe. And nobody, nobody could have been more surprised than I was. I knew it, I said. I told you so. It was for me. It was for me, all right. I could see my name, Joe, on the envelope. But there was a lot of writing, like typewriting on the paper inside, so I gave it back to him. I was in a hurry. I can't read writing very well, I said. You read it. Hurry up. I told you you'd send me home. Now wait a minute, Joe. Let's wait and see what the letter says. I could hardly wait. I kept kind of jumping up and down. I was in such a hurry. Sit down, will you? He said. I sat down on this big box beside him. He began to read kind of fast and running the words together. Dear Joe, thank you for your letter. I wish I could make sure that your father would come home for Christmas, but I'm afraid I can't. So please don't count on it. However, I hope you have a Merry Christmas. Very truly yours, Santa Claus. Is that all? I said. There must be more. Maybe you dropped the other part somewhere. Look around, will you? 
He let out another big groan. As a matter of fact, he said, now that you mention it, I guess I did forget one thing. Some marbles turned up here this morning, addressed to somebody named Joe. I guess they're for you, too. He reached in his pocket and pulled out the sack of marbles. Boy, they were real good marbles. And I was sure glad to get them, but I was still worried about the letter. I guess I better hurry up and write another letter, I said. You can mail it for me like you did before, I guess. I guess I didn't say how important it was. Anyway, I want to thank him for the marbles. That won't be necessary, he said. I'll give you my personal guarantee you there's no point in writing another letter. This time you write it, I said. You can make it sound better. Thank him for the marbles and tell him how important it is that my father comes home and not to forget the rest of the things I'm supposed to get, like the baseball glove and the football and then electric train. Mail it right away, will you? Joe, he said, you are a determined man. So am I. Right now I'm eating my lunch. He took out this big ham sandwich. Is that a ham sandwich, I said? Yes, he said. Is it good? I said. Yes, he said. He looked at me kind of mad and kept on chewing real hard. Then he took another ham sandwich out of the bag. Could I possibly persuade you to join me, he said. Sure, I said. It was good, too. I was hungry. What's your name, I said. Al, he said. Pretty soon, we finished the sandwiches. Then he took out this big red apple and started to eat it. My father used to cut up apples with his penknife, I said. I'll bet he did, Al said. I'll bet he had to in self-defense. I watched Al cut up the apple, and we ate it for a while. How come you don't want to write this letter for me, I said. Don't you know how to write a, write a letter? All of a sudden, Al threw the apple core clear out the door into the alley. I know how to write a letter, all right, he said. I just don't know how to get the right answers. Maybe there's a worm in the apple or something. He sure looked funny. How come, I said. You mean you don't think you're going to get what you want for Christmas either? You might put it that way, Al said. Only in the army we called it a deer-drawn letter. Boy, did he look crabby all of a sudden, like this big lion the time my father took me to the zoo that had a toothache and tried to bite everybody. What's a deer-drawn letter, I said. Is it good or bad? I guess it was this letter that made him look so mad all the time. Now he picked up an orange and threw it out the door without even eating it or anything. What was the matter with him anyway? Let's just skip it, Joe, he said pretty soon. All it means is that a girl married somebody else. Girls are sure dumb, I said, playing with dolls and kissing people and everything. I hate girls. Hold that thought, Joe, Al said. It may come in handy later on. Here in the army, how come you work in the post office, I said. I got rotated home last month, Al said. I needed a job. The post office needed an extra clerk for the Christmas rush. We were made for each other. He crumpled up his lunch bag and threw it out the door. Boy, he sure had good aim. I bet he could have been a big league pitcher or something if he wanted to. Look, Joe, he said. Recess is over. If you have plans for this afternoon, don't let me detain you. Well, I guess I better get home on account of Miss Henderson will have a fit, I said. Don't forget to write the letter right away. Make it a good one. I'll be back tomorrow. Al kind of groaned again, like my father at the time my white rat made a nest in his bedroom slipper. Look, Joe, he said, we've just been been through all this. Take my word for it. It's a lost cause. I can't possibly write the letter. Sure you can, I said. I'll pay you back for the stamp and everything out of this money I gave up for Christmas. Send it air mail. I came back right after school the next day. And I was eating his lunch again in this kind of empty room. He didn't even look up when I came in. He was eating a fried egg sandwich. 
Where's the letter? I said. Does it say my father's coming for sure? Al just kept on eating. He had kind of a fried egg mustache. Didn't it come yet? I said. There's only one more day until Christmas. Look, Joe, Al said. Let's not kid ourselves. I told you there wouldn't be any letter. Maybe it just didn't get here yet, I said. Wasn't there even a bag or a box or anything? Like last time when he said the marbles? Al let on let out this big long sigh. As a matter of fact, he said, now that you mention it, I do remember finding a paper bag with your name on it. There seems to be some kind of big glove in it. He gave me this old wrinkled paper bag. That's the baseball glove, I said. Don't you even know that? Boy, was he dumb. It was about a million times too big, but it was sure a good glove. That's one of the things I'm supposed to get for Christmas, I said. Don't you remember? I, I already told you. There were the marbles and the baseball glove and the football and an electric train. I know, I'll said. Just don't keep reminding me. Is that a fried egg sandwich, I said. He gave it to me and took out another one. Joe, I'm eating my lunch, he said. I mean, we're eating my lunch. Don't you ever get anything to eat at school? You're not supposed to eat anything at school, I said. You sure didn't know anything. You're supposed to learn things. Didn't you ever go to school? Off and on, Al said. What things are you supposed to learn? Drawing and things, I said. I'm in kindergarten. What were you supposed to learn? Drawing and things, Al said. I was going to be an architect. I bet that would be fun, I said. What is it? It's somebody who builds things, Al said. Like houses and so forth. He took out this big banana and peeled it. And I helped him eat it. I sure wish we had a house, I said. Can you build one? First you have to learn how, Al said. Then why don't you learn how, I said. All of a sudden, Al threw the banana peel clear out the door into the alley. He was beginning to look mad again. Look, Joe, he said. It's a long grind. That was a long time ago. I had a lot of plans then that never worked out. All of a sudden, he took out this big candy bar and ate the whole thing right before I could even say anything. I've got a whole new set of problems now, like finding another job after Christmas. What kind of job, I said. Any kind of job, Al says. Who cares? What difference does it make? You're sure you don't want to build a house, I said. So you can have a dog in the backyard and everything? I sure like dogs. All of a sudden, Al threw the whole lunch bag out the door without even eating the rest of it or anything. Look, Joe, he said, I don't want to build a house. I don't want to be an architect. I don't want to have a dog in the backyard. Boy, he sure did look crabby now, like that big line at the zoo when the man tried to fix its toothache. It kept roaring and jumping up and biting people. Listen, Joe, he said, I've got to get back to work. You've got to go home. Let's just skip the whole thing. Go play with your marbles. So then he went back in this big room with all the boxes, and he went inside one of these cages where people sell stamps and everything. He shut the door, but I could tell which cage it was on account of it said stamps on the glass bar. There wasn't hardly anybody in this big room, so I went around the edge until I got to his door, and I opened it real quiet. There were about a million people lined up on the other side of the cage, waiting to, to buy some stamps and everything. Hey, Al, I said. You forgot to look for the letter. I'll come back tomorrow and hope you find it. He turned around and looked at me. He looked madder than ever. I mean, real mad. Like my father that time I dropped his watch in the bathtub. Let's face it, Joe, he said. There isn't going to be any letter. I'm sorry, but sometimes you just don't get what you want for Christmas. You do if you want it hard enough, I said. My father said so. He said we would have a real big Christmas tree this year. And underneath there would be the marbles and the baseball glove and the football and the... Listen, Joe, Al said. I've done all I can. I'm sorry. Believe me. Run along now, will you? Get lost. I just haven't got any more time to play games. Who asked him to play games anyway? 
All of a sudden, the door to the cage shut with a big bang right in front of me. I guess it blew shut or something. So I went home. The next day was Christmas Eve. Only not until that night, you know what I mean. I didn't get to the post office, and after school, on account of Miss Henderson picked me up. But pretty soon, I sneaked out while she was baking some cookies, and she thought I was taking a nap. I guess it was pretty late, alright. It was almost dark by the time I got there. It sure was cold. The back door to the post office was locked. I couldn't even open it, so I came around the side, and there was somebody sitting on the steps. It was Al. He still looked mad, like my father the time I got lost at the circus. He was sort of shivering, and his face looked kind of blue. What are you doing here, he said. You're late. I was looking for you, I said. My mother said last night that my father really isn't going to go come home for Christmas, no matter what. She said I shouldn't have bothered you. I'm sorry I bothered you. Think nothing of it, Al said. Everything bothers me. Gave me this kind of lumpy-looking big bag. I just thought I'd better make sure you got this package that came for you today. It looks like it's got some kind of a ball in it. That's a football, I said. Boy, it was a real football, like they used it in a football game and everything. Thanks for waiting, I said. I sat down beside him on the steps. It was pretty cold, all right. Joe, I said, why don't you go home? He looked like my father at the time I put this real swell lizard I found once on his plate at dinner. Doesn't anybody pay attention to where you are? Sure, they pay attention, I said. They think I'm asleep. My mother has to work late tonight until 9 o'clock in the store. And she said afterwards she's going to go out again and get the Christmas tree. Only the thing is, I'm going to surprise her. I'm going to get this big tree and put it up like my father always does, so we can put the electric train under it. What electric train? Al said. The one I wrote about in the letter, only it hasn't got here yet. I wouldn't count on it, Al said. You can't be too sure about getting things. For example, you need an electric train, but I need a new suit. One of us is out to be disappointed. It'll come all right, I said. Everything else did. It'll probably be there when I get back home. Do you like to pick out Christmas trees and put the ornaments on and everything? No, Al said. I never bought a Christmas tree before, I said. I went with my father, but I guess it's easy, all right. Have you got any money? Sure, I've got money, I said. I guess he thought I was dumb or something. I had almost a dollar saved up, and I spent 50 cents for a present for my mother. So I've got 35 cents left. All of a sudden, I looked like he was getting mad again, or tired or something. Look, Joe, just go home, will you? He said, forget about the Christmas tree and the electric train. Get a good night's sleep. I will, I said. First, I want to get the tree so I can put the electric train under it. I started down the street where I saw the big place where they sell Christmas trees. But I couldn't hardly even see the post office. It was so dark. So I kept going. Pretty soon, I heard somebody back of me. It was Al. Hey, Joe, he said. He had this kind of funny look on my face. Like my father, the time I made this big Father's Day card for him at school and brought it home. I just happened to think of a fellow I know who sells Christmas trees, Al said. I saw some big ones there for about 35 cents. Well, it was down this way, Al said. But if you don't mind waiting, I've got an errand to do first in the hardware store. Al told me to wait outside the hardware store, and he was in there for a pretty long time. But I didn't mind waiting on account of there was this electric train set up in the window with tracks and bridges and tunnels and everything. Sure was a swell train. It was a good thing Al came along when I bought this Christmas tree at this place he knew for 35 cents on account of I couldn't even carry the tree. It was so big. Al had to carry it. I helped him some. 
That sure smell good. It was a pretty long walk home. By the time we got there, this truck was stopped out in front, and a band was putting a big box in front of our door in the hall. That's my electric train, I said. I told you it would get here. That's right, Al said. Now that I think of it, you did tell me. Miss Henderson was sure mad when she saw I had sneaked out and everything, but Al said he he would get me some supper, so after a while, she unlocked the door to our apartment, and we went inside. Boy, the tree I bought was too big, but, I fitted, but it fitted fine under... Boy, the tree I bought was too big, but it fitted fine after Al cut off the top of the tree like my father used to do. It turned out... This electric train was so big it ran all around the living room. First, we put down the tracks and the bridges and the tunnels and the trestle and the freight, freight cars and the engine and the passenger train and the caboose. Then I'll put all these ornaments we had on the tree while I put the marbles and the baseball glove and the football underneath like they were supposed to be. He had just put this big star on top of the tree when my mother came in. Boy, was she surprised. She looked kind of tired and messed up, and she was carrying all these packages. This is Al, I said. My mother looked at Al, and he looked at her, and all of a sudden they kind of smiled. Her face got all red, and she sort of just stood there. Well, this certainly is kind of you, my mother said. Her voice sure sounded funny. Joe's told me so much about you. I don't know how to thank you. Al started climbing down off the kitchen stool, and he sort of fell down the last step. It was a real pleasure, he said, real polite and everything. He sounded kind of funny, too. I really enjoy trimming a Christmas tree. What was the matter with him, anyway? He didn't like to trim Christmas trees. Well, I'll be on my way now, he said. I'm very glad to have met you. Oh, do you have to hurry off, my mother said. I'm sure Joe would like you to say. Stay. Boy, her, her face was sure pink. All of a sudden, she didn't look so tired. I've brought home some fruitcake, and I'll, I'll just put on some coffee. It won't take a minute. Won't you sit down? My mother sat down in a chair. Al sat down in another chair. I understand you work in the post office, my mother said. That must be interesting work. Well, it's only temporary, of course, Al said. I'm thinking of going back to study architecture. That's the career I'm really interested in, building and all. What did he say that for? He didn't like building at all. Hey, Al, I said. How come? My mother got up and went into the kitchen and started to make some coffee. Pretty soon you could smell the coffee and the Christmas tree all together. It sure smelled good. Al turned on the Christmas tree lights, and then he built a fire in the fireplace, and then he made the train go. It ran all over the room, under the bridges and all, and over the mountains and through the tunnels. I never saw such a good train. Pretty soon my mother started to bring in a lot of things to eat, like when we had a party with my father in front of the fire. Her face was all pink, and she kept on smiling and everything. She sure looked nice. Do you live around here? she asked Al. Yes, I have a room a few blocks away, Al said. But before too long, I want to build a house with a big yard and, pre and plenty of room for a dog and all that. What did he go and say that for? Boy, he sure must have changed his mind or something. Hey, Al, I said. How come? Joe, Al said. There's something I've been meaning to tell you for quite some time. What? I said. Merry Christmas, he said. And that was the night my father came home. Hey, this is Sandra. Um, I'm reading A Certain Small Shepherd by Rebecca Caudill. I think that's how you say that. Um, this is the story of a strange and marvelous thing. It happened on Christmas morning at Hurricane Gap, and not so long ago at that. 
But before you hear about Christmas morning, you must first hear about Christmas Eve, for that is part of the story. And before you hear about Christmas Eve, you must first hear about Jamie, for without Jamie, there would be no story. Jamie was born on a freakish night in November. The cold night moved down from north and rested its heavy hand suddenly on Hurricane Gap. Within an hour's time, the naked earth turned brittle. Winefork Creek froze solid in its winding bed and lay motionless, like a string dropped at the foot of Pine Island. Nothing but dark wind was abroad in the hollow. Wild creatures huddled in their dens, cows stood hunched in their stalls, housewives stuffed the cracks underneath their doors against the needling cold, and men heaped oak and apple wood on their fires. At the foot of Gap where Jamie's house stood, the wind doubled its fury. It battered the doors of the house, it rattled the windows, it wailed like a banshee in the chimney. It's bad luck trying to break in, moaned Jamie's mother, and turned her face to her pillow. Bad luck has no business here, Jamie's father said gravely. He laid more logs on the fire. Flames licked at them and roared up the chimney. But through the roaring, the wind railed thin and high. Father took the newborn baby from the bed beside its mother and sat holding its knee. Sarah, he called. You and Honey come see Jamie. Two girls came from the shadows of the room. In the firelight, they stood looking at the tiny, wrinkled, red face inside the blanket. He's such a little brother, said Sarah. Give him time. He'll grow, said Father, proudly. When he's three, he'll be as big as Honey. When he's six, he'll be as big as you. You want to hold him? Sarah sat down on the stool Father laid and bundled her arms. Honey stood beside Sarah. She pulled back the corner of the blanket. She opened one of the tiny hands, laid one of her fingers in it. She smiled at the face in the blanket. She looked upward, smiling at Father. Father did not see her. He was standing beside his mother, trying to comfort her. That night, Jamie's mother died. Jamie ate and slept and grew. Like other babies, he cut teeth. He learned to sit alone and to crawl. When he was a year old, he toddled around like other one-year-olds. At two, he carried around sticks and stones, like the other two-year-olds. He threw balls, he built towers with blocks, and he knocked them down. Everything that other two-year-olds could do, Jamie could do, except for one thing. He could never talk. The woman of Hurricane Gap sat in their chinny corners and shook their heads. His mother, poor soul, should have rubbed him with lard, said one. She ought to have brushed him with rabbit foot, said another. Wasn't the boy born on a Wednesday, asked another. Wednesday's child is full of well, she quoted from an old saying. Jamie gets everything he wants by pointing, explained father. Give him time, he'll learn to talk. At three, Jamie could unzip his pants and tie his shoes. At four, he followed father to the stable and milked the kitten's pan full of milk. But even at four, Jamie could not talk like other children. He could only make strange grunting noises. One day, Jamie found the litter of new kittens in a box under the stairs. He ran to the cornfield to tell father. He wanted to say he had been feeling around the box for a ball he'd lost, and suddenly his fingers felt something warm and squirmy, and there was all those kittens. But how could you tell somebody something when if you opened your mouth, you could only grunt? Jamie started running. He ran till he reached the orchard. He threw himself face down on the tall grass, kicked his feet on the ground. One day, Honey's friend came out to play hide-and-seek. Jamie played with them, because seeing Clive was the oldest, he shut his eyes first and counted to fifty, while the other children scattered and hid behind trees in the yard and corners of the house. After he had counted to fifty, the hollow rang with cries. One, two, three for Millie. One, two, three for Jamie. One, two, three for Honey. One, two, three, I'm home free. It came Jamie's turn to shut his eyes. He sat on the doorstep, covered his eyes with his hands, and began to count. 
Listen to Jamie, Clive called to the other children. The others listened. They all began to laugh. Jamie got out from the doorstep. He ran after the children. He fought them with both fists and both feet. Honey helped him. Then Jenny ran away to the orchard and threw himself face down in the tall grass and kicked the ground. Later, when Father was walking through the orchard, he came across Jamie lying the grass. Jamie, said Father, there's a new calf in the pasture. I need help me bring it to the stable. Jamie got up from the grass. He wiped his eyes. Out of the orchard and across the pasture, he trudged at Father's heels. In the far corner of the pasture, they found the cow. Beside her, on wobbly legs, stood the new calf. Together, Father and Jamie drove the cow and calf to the stable, into an empty stall. Together, they brought nubbins from the corn crib to feed the cow. Together, they made the bed of clean hay for the calf. Jamie, said Father the next morning, I need you to help plow the corn. Father harnessed the horse and lifted Jamie into the horse's back. Away to the cornfield they went, Father riding in front of the horse, Jamie riding, holding tight to the mane. While Father plowed, Jamie walked in the furrow behind them. When Father lays back in the shade for permission to tree to rest, Jamie lay beside him. Father told Jamie the names of the birds flying overhead, the turkey vulture lifting and tilting its, up its uplifted wings against the white cloud, the carrion crow flapping lazily and sailing, and the sharp-shinned hawk gliding to rest in the woodland. The next day, Jamie helped Father set out sweet potatoes. On the other days, he helped Father trim fence rows and mend fences. Whatever Father did, Jamie helped him. One day, Father drove the car out of the shed and stopped in front of the house. Jamie, he called, jumped in. We're going across Pine Mountain. Can I go too? asked Honey. Not today, said Father. I'm taking Jamie to see a doctor. The doctor looked at Jamie's throat. He listened to Jamie grunt. He shook his head. You might want to see Dr. Jones, he said. Father and Jamie got into the car and drove across Big Black Mountain to see Dr. Jones. Maybe Jamie could learn to talk, said Dr. Jones. <gasps> but he would have to be sent away to a special school. He would have to stay there for several months. He might even have to stay for two or three years, or four. It's a long time, said Dr. Jones. And the pocket is empty, said Father. So Father and Jamie got in the car and started home. Usually, Father talked to Jamie as they drove along. Now they drove, a now they drove all the way across Big Black and across Pine without a word. In August, every year, school opened at Hurricane Gap. On the first morning of school, the year that Jamie was six, Father handed him a book, a tablet, a pencil, a box of crowns, all shiny and new. You're going to school, he said. I'll go with you this morning. The students, no. The neighbors walked them watching down the road together toward the one-room schoolhouse. Poor foolish father, they said and shook their heads, trying to make somebody out of that no-account boy. Miss Creech, the teacher, shook her head too. With so many children, so many classes, so many grades, she hadn't time for a boy that couldn't talk, she told father. What will Jamie do all day long, she asked. He will listen, said father. So Jamie took his tablet, his pencil, his book of crowns, and sat down in an empty seat in the front row. Every day, Jamie listened. He learned the words and the pages of the book. He learned how to count. He liked the reading and counting. But the, school, but the part of school that Jamie liked the best was the big piece of paper Miss Creech gave him every day. On it, he printed words in squares, like the other children. He wrote numbers, he drew pictures, and he colored them with crowns. He could say things on paper. One day, Miss Creech said Jamie had the best paper in first grade. She held it up for all the children to see. On sunny days on the playground, the children played ball games in 3D duck-on, games, games a boy can play without talking. On rainy days, they played indoors. One rainy day, the children played a guessing game. Jamie knew the answer that no child could guess, but he couldn't say the answer. He didn't know how to spell the answer. He could only point to show that he knew the answer.
That evening at home, he threw his book into the corner. He slammed the door. He pulled Huddy's hair. He twisted the cat's tail. The cat wailed and leaped under the bed. Jamie, said Father, cats have feelings, just like boys. Every year, the people of Hurricane Gap celebrated Christmas in the white steeple church that stood across the road from Jamie's house. On Christmas Eve, the boys and girls gave a Christmas play. People came to see it from the other side of Pine Mountain and from the head of every creek and hollow. Miss Screech directed the play. Through the late fall, as the leaves fell from the trees and the days grew shorter and the air snapped with cold, Jamie wondered why Miss Screech would talk about the play. Finally, one afternoon in November, Miss Screech announced it. It was time to play practice. <gasps> Jamie let his book inside a desk and listened carefully as Miss Screech assigned the parts of the play. Miss Screech gave the part of Mary to Joanne, who picked up the pine mountain behind the rock quarry. She asked Tiny to bring her big doll for the baby. She gave the part of Joseph to Henry, who lived at the head of Little Laurel Patch. She asked Sarah to be an angel, Clive the innkeeper. She chose three big boys to be people living in Bethlehem. The rest of the boys and girls would sing Carol, she said. Jamie for a moment listened to the sense of the words she had heard. Yes, Miss Creech expected him to sing carols. Every day after school, the boys and girls went up with Miss Creech to the road and practiced a Christmas play. Every day, Jamie stood in front of the entire row of characters, carolers. The first day, he stood quietly. The second day, he showed Millie, who was standing next to him. The third day, he pulled Honey's hair. The fourth day, when carols began singing, Jamie ran to the window, grabbed a ball from the sill, and bounced it across the floor. Wait a minute, children, Mitch Creech said to the children. She turned to Jamie. Jamie, she said, how would you like to be a shepherd? He's too little, said one of the big shepherds. No, he isn't, said Sarah. If my father was a shepherd, Jamie would help him. That afternoon, Jamie became a small shepherd. He ran across after practice to tell father. Father could understand what Jamie was telling him, but he knew that Jamie had been changed into someone important. One afternoon at clay practice, Miss Creech said to the boys and girls, Forget who you are, Joanne and Henry, and Sarah and Clive and Jamie. Remember that you are Mary and Joseph, an angel and innkeeper, a shepherd, and strange things are happening in the hollow where you live. That night at bedtime, Father took the big Bible off the table. Sarah and Honey and Jamie gathered around the fire, over the room in a hushed tell as Father read, and there were the same country shepherds abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the world came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, behold, I bring you good tidings of joy, which will be to all people. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, what the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Christmas drew near. At home in the evenings, when they had finished studying their lessons, the boys and girls of Hurricane Cat made decorations for the Christmas tree that would stand in the church. They glued together strips of bright-colored paper in long chains and whittled stars and baby lambs' camels out of wild cherry wood. They strung long strings of popcorn. Jamie strung a string of popcorn. Every night, as Father read from the Bible, Jamie added more kernels to his string. Jamie, are you trying to make a string long enough to reach the top of Pine Mountain? asked Tiny one night. Jamie did not hear her. He was far away on the hillside, tending sheep. And even though he was a small shepherd and could only grunt when he tried to talk, an angel wrapped around with dazzling light was singing out to him to tell him a wonderful thing had happened in the hollow in the house stall. He fell asleep, stringing his popcorn and listening. In the corner of the room where the fire burned, Father pulled up from under his bed the trundle bed, which in Jamie slept. He turned back the covers, picked Jamie up from the floor, and laid him gently in the bed. <gasps> the next day, Father went across Pine Mountain to the store. When he came home, 
The he handed Sarah a package. It was in white cloth of four colors. Green, gold, white, and red. Make Jimmy a shepherd's coat, like the picture of the Bible, Father said to Sarah. Father went into the woods and found a crooked limb of tree. He made it a shepherd's crook for Jamie. Jamie went to school the next morning and carried his shepherd's crook and shepherd's coat on his arm. He would wear his coat and carry his crook when the boys and girls practiced the play. All day, Jamie waited patiently to practice the play. All day, he sat listening, but who could tell whose voice he heard? He might have been Mrs. Creech. He might have been an angel. Two days before Christmas, Jamie's father and Clive's father drove down in the pickup truck along the Trace Branch Road, looking for a Christmas tree. On the mountainside, they spotted a juniper growing broad and tall and free. With axes, they cut it down. They snaked it down the mountainside and loaded it into the trunk. Father had opened the doors of the church wide open to get in the tree inside. It reached the ceiling. Frost blueberries shone on its feathery green branches. The air around smelled of spice. That afternoon, the mothers of Hurricane Gap and Miss Creech and all the boys and girls gathered at the church to decorate the tree. In the tip-top of the tree, they fastened the biggest star. Among the other branches, they hung other stars and baby lambs and camels wooded out of wild cherry wood. They hung chains from branch to branch. Last of all, they festooned the tree with strings of snowy popcorn. Ah, they said as they stood back and looked at the tree. Besides the tree, the boys and girls practiced the play for Christmas one last time. When they had finished, they started home. Midway down the aisle, they looked again at the tree. Sarah opened the door. Look, she called. Look, everybody, it's snowing. Jamie, the next morning, looked out on a world such as he had never seen. Hidden were the roads and the fences and the woodpile and the swing under the oak tree, all buried in a lumpy quilt of snow. And before a stinging wind, snowflakes were... And before a stinging wind, snowflakes still madly whirled and danced. Sarah and Honey joined Jamie at the window. You can't see across Line Fork Creek in this storm, said Sarah. And where is Pine Mountain? Where is the church, asked Honey. That's what I'd like to know. Jamie turned to them with questions in his eyes. It had been snowing hard that night in Bethlehem, Jamie, Honey told him. The shepherds wouldn't have had to keep their sheep in the pasture. They would have had them in the stable, keeping them warm, wouldn't they, Father? They would have heard what the angels said, all shut indoors like that. When angels have something to tell a shepherd, said Father, they can find him in any place, in any sort of weather. If a shepherd is listening, he will hear. At eleven o'clock, the telephone rang. Hello, said Father. Sarah and Honey and Jamie heard Mrs. Creech's voice. I just got the latest weather report. The storm is going on all day, into the night. Do you think? The telephone started ringing, and once it started to ring, it wouldn't stop. Everyone in Hurricane Gap listened. The news they heard was always bad. Drifts ten feet were piled up along Trace Branch Road. The boys and girls at Little Laura Patch couldn't get out. Joseph lived in Little Laura Patch. They rode up to the rock quarry. Mary couldn't get down the mountain. And then the telephone went silent, dead in the storm. Meanwhile, the snow kept up its crazy dance before the wind. It drifted in great white mounds across the road and into the fence road. Nobody but a foolish man would take a road to a day like this. At dinner, Jamie sat at the table, staring at his face. Shepherds must eat... Sh- Ugh. Shepherds must, must, she, shepherds must eat, Jamie, said Father. <laughs> honey and I don't feel like eating either, Jamie, said Sarah. But see how Honey is eating? Jamie stared at his place. You know what, asked Sarah. Because we're all disappointed, we won't save the Christmas stack cake for tomorrow. We'll have a slice today, as soon as you eat your dinner, Jamie. Still, Jamie stared at his plate. He did not touch his food. You think that play was real, don't you, Jamie, said Honey. It wasn't real. It was just a play we were giving, like some story we'd make up. 
Jamie could hold his sobs no longer. His body heaved as he ran to father. Father laid an arm on Jamie's shoulders. Sometimes, Jamie, he said, angels say to shepherds, be of good courage. On the short, no. On through the short afternoon, the storm raged. Father heaped more wood onto the fire. Sarah sat in front of the fire, reading a book. Honey cracked hickory nuts on the stone hearth. Jamie sat. Bring the popper, Jamie, and I'll pop some corn for you, said Father. Jamie shook his head. Want me to read to you? asked Sarah. Jamie shook his head. Why don't you help Honey crack history nuts? asked Father. Jamie shook his head. Jamie still thinks he's a shepherd, said Honey. After a while, Jamie left the fire and stood at the window, watching the wild storm. He squinted his eyes and stared. He motioned to his father to come and look. Sarah and Honey, too, hurried to the window and peered off. Through the snowdrifts, trudged a man followed by the wing. A woman. They were bundled in mutton from head to foot. Their faces were lowered against the wind and the flying snowflakes. Lord have mercy, said Father, as he watched them turn up the gate. Around the house, the man and the woman made their way to the back door. As Father opened the door for them, a gust of snow-laden winds whisked into the kitchen. Come in, out of the cold, said Father. The man and woman stepped inside. They stamped their feet on the kitchen floor and brushed snow from their clothes. They followed Father to the front room and sat down in the fire. In the chairs, Father told Sarah to bring. Father, too, sat down. Jamie stood beside Father. Sarah and Honey stood behind his chair. The three of them stared at the man and woman silently. Where did you come from? asked Father. The other side of Pine Mountain, said the man. Why didn't you stop sooner? said Father. We didn't stop, the man said. At three houses, nobody had room, he said. Father was silently for a minute. He looked at his own bed and at Jamie's trundle bed underneath it. The man and woman looked numbly into the fire. How far were you going? asked Father. Down Straight Creek, said the man. He jerked his head toward the woman, to her sisters. You'll never get there tonight, Father said. Maybe, said the man. Maybe there'd be a place in your stable? We could lay pallets on the kitchen floor, said Father. The woman looked at the children. She shook her head. The stable's better, she said. The stable's cold, said Father. It will do, said the woman. When the man and the woman had dried their clothes and warmed themselves, Father led the way down to the stable. He carried an armload of quilts and on top of them an old buffalo skin. From his right arm, he swung a lantern and a milk bucket. I'll milk while I'm here, he said to Sarah. Get supper ready. Jamie and Sarah and Honey watched from the kitchen window as the three trudged through snowdrifts to the stable. It was dark when Father came back to the house. How long are the man and woman going to stay? asked Honey. Father hung a tea kettle of water on the, on the crane over the fire and went upstairs to find another lantern. All tonight, he said as he came down the stairs, maybe longer. Father hurriedly ate the supper Sarah put on the table. Then he took in one hand the lighted lantern and a tin bucket filled with supper for the man and the woman. I put some Christmas stat cake in the bucket, said Sarah. In his other hand, Father took the tea kettle. It's cold in that stable, he said as he, stared, as he started down the kitchen floor. Bitter cold. On the doorstep, he turned. Don't wait for me, he called. I may be gone a good while. On the earth, darkness thickened. Still, the wind blew and the snow whirled. The clock in the mantel struck eight. It ticked solemnly in the quiet house where Sarah and Honey and Jamie waited. Why doesn't Father come, complained Janie. Why don't you hang up your stocking and go to bed, asked Sarah. Jamie, it's time to hang up your stocking too and go to bed. Jamie did not answer. He sat staring at the fire. That's Jamie. He still thinks he's his shepherd, said Honey, as she hung up her stocking on the mantel. Jamie, said Sarah, aren't you going to hang up your stocking and go to bed? 
She pulled a trundle bed from underneath Father's bed and turned back the covers. She turned back the covers of Father's bed. She hung her stockings and followed Jay Honey upstairs. Jamie, she called out. Still, Jamie stared into the file. Of a fi- <clears throat> Still, Jamie stared into the fire. A strange feeling was growing inside him. This night was not like other nights he knew. Something mysterious was going on. He felt afraid. I'm just going to sidetrack for a moment, and I'm going to say that those people wanting to stay in the stable was really suspicious. But, anyways, what was that he heard? The wind? Only the wind? He laid down the beds with his clothes on. He drifted, no, he dropped off to sleep. A rattling at the door waked him. He sat upright quickly. He looked around. His heart beat fast, but nothing in the room had changed. Everything was as it had been when he laid down. The fire was burning. Two stockings, Sunny and Harrow's. Honey and Sarah's hung up under the mantle. The clock was ticking solemnly. He looked at Father's beds. The street to which Sarah had turned them back. There, there it was again. It sounded like singing. Glory to God on peace earth. On earth peace. Jamie breathed hard. Had he heard that or had he only sung it to himself? Get up, Jamie, he heard Father saying. Put on your clothes quick. Jamie opened his eyes. He saw daylight filling the room. He saw Father standing over him, bundled in warm clothes. Wondering, Jamie flung the clothes back and rolled out of bed. Why, Jamie, said Father, you're already dressed. Father went downstairs. Honey, Sarah, come quick. What happened, Father? asked Sarah. Where are we going to do? asked Honey, as he fumbled sleepy with her shoelaces. Come with me, said Father. Where are we going? To the stable? asked Sarah. The stable was no fit place, said Father. Not when the church was close by, with a stovepipe in it for coal and burning. Out into the cold, silent by white morning, they went. The wind had died. The clothes were lifting, one star in the vast sky. Its brilliance fading and growing light shone down on Hurricane Gap. Father led the way through the drifted snow. The others followed, stop, stepping in his tracks. <sighs> As Father pushed open the church door, the fragrance of the Christmas tree rushed at them. The potbelly stove glowed red, glowed red with the fire within. Muffling his footsteps, Father walked quietly up the aisle. Wonderingly, the others followed. There, besides the star-crowned Christmas tree, where the Christmas play was to have been, they saw the woman. She lay on the old buffalo skin covered with quilts. Beside her, the pout sat the man. The woman smiled at them. You came to see, she asked it, and lifted the cover. Sarah went first and peeked under the cover. You too, Jamie. He took one quick look. Sarah ran down the church aisle, calling after him. Wait. Jimmy hesitated for a moment. He leaned forward and took one quick look. Then he turned, shot down the aisle, and out of the church, slammed the door behind him. Wait, Sarah, cried, asked said father, watching Jamie through the window. To the house, Jamie made his way, half running. Inside the house, he hurriedly pulled a shepherd rose out from his coat. He snatched the crook from the, windy, from the chimney counter. With his hand on the doorknob, he glanced towards the fireplace. There, under the mantle, hung Sarah and Honey's stockings. And there beside him hung his stopping. Now who had hung it there? It had it had in the same bulge its stopping had every morning, Christmas morning, since he could remember. A bulge made by an orange. Jamie ran to the fireplace and felt the toe of his stopping. Yes, there was a dime, as just on as just as on other every other Christmas morning. Hurriedly he emptied his stocking. With the orange in the diamond hand and the crook in the other, he made his way towards the church. Father and Sarah, still watching, saw his shepherd's robe, a spot of glowing color in the great white world. Father opened the church door. Without looking left or right, Jamie hurried up the aisle. Father and Sarah followed behind him. Besides the pallet, he dropped to his knees. 
Here's a Christmas shift for the child, he says, clear and strong. Father, gasped Daryl. Father, listen to Jamie. The woman turned back the covers from the baby's face. Jamie laid the orange beside the tiny baby's hand. And a gift for the mother, Jamie said to the woman. He put the dime in her hand. Surely, the woman spoke softly, the Lord lives on this day. Surely, said Father, the Lord does live on this day and all days. He is loving and merciful and good. In the hush that fathered, that followed, Christmas in all its joy and majesty came to Hurricane Gap. And it wasn't so long ago at that. The end. That was the story. And I messed it up a lot of times because I'm not super great at reading out loud. But it's okay. I thought it was a good story. I thought it was nice that he really wanted to be a shepherd the whole time. And then he got his little moment at the end. Um, I'm glad that the lady's baby was okay. Even though she walked like 10 miles in the snow. Because that couldn't have been good for like a recently pregnant lady. And yeah. I thought it was a sweet story about Christmas. And I think it's funny that people used to get oranges on Christmas. Because I eat oranges like every day. So, But I guess it was harder to get oranges back then. But yeah. Now we just get chocolate oranges. I like chocolate oranges better than actual oranges. But that's just me. Um, yeah. I feel like regular oranges usually taste weird. Unless they're good oranges. Okay, yeah. that That's my book review. Um, thank you for listening. Love you. Have a great day. Hi, this is Alona, and I'm going to read Trouble at the Rin, the Inn by Dina Donohue. Wally the innkeeper was stern. Let him in? No way. Not in a thousand years. He started to close the door. Wally was older than his classmates and taller, too. That's why he was... That's why he was a shoe in for the role of hard-hearted innkeeper in the school nativity play. And he followed the script and all their practices, but something happened between the practice and the performance. So, after you hear the story, read. Ask yourself why this simple little story of boys and girls and bathrobes and sheets has become so greatly loved. What reasons can you think of? The realm of legend, but the old-timers who in the audience that night never tire of recalling exactly what happened. Wally was nine that year, and in the second grade, though he w- should have never been in the fourth, he should have been in the fourth. Most people in town knew that he had difficulty in keeping up. He was big and clumsy, slow in movement and mind. Still, Wally was well liked by the other children in his class, all of whom were smaller than he. Though the boys had trouble hiding their irritation when he uncoordinated, Wally would ask to play ball with them. Most often, they'd find a way to keep him off the field, but Wally would get hang around anyway, not sulking, just hoping. He was always a helpful boy, a willing and smiling one, and the natural protector, paradoxically, of the underdog. Sometimes, if the older boys chased the younger ones away, it would always be Wally who'd say, Can't they stay? They're no bother. Wally fancied the idea of being a shepherd with a flute in the Christmas pageant that year. But the place director, Miss Lumberd, assigned him to a more important role. After all, she reasoned the innkeeper did not have too many lines, and that Wally's size would make his refusal of lodging into to Joseph more forceful. And so it happened that usual large partition audience gathered for the town's yuletide extravaganza of the crooks and creeks. Of beards, crowns, halos, and a whole stage full of squeaky voices. No one on stage or off 
was more caught up in the magic of the night than Wallace, purely. They said that later he stood in the wings and watched the performance with such pleased good in innkeeper. With such fascination that from time to time Miss Lumbert had to make sure he didn't wander on stage before his cue. When then the time came when Joseph appeared slowly, tenderly, guiding Mary to the door of the inn. Joseph knocked hard on the wooden set into the painted black backdrop. Wally the innkeeper was there waiting. What do you want? Wally said, swinging the door open with a brisk gesture. We seek lodging. Seek it elsewhere. Wally looked straight ahead, but spoke vigorously. The inn is filled. Sir, we have asked everywhere in vain. We have traveled far and very wary. There is no room in, in the inn for you. Wally looked properly stern. Please, good innkeeper, this is my wife, Mary. She is heavy with child and needs a place to rest. Surely you must have some small corner for her. She is so tired. Now for the first time, the innkeeper relaxed. The, his stiff stance and looked down at Mary. With that, there was a long pause, long enough to make the audience a bit tense with embarrassment. No, be gone, the prompter whispered from the wings. No, Wally repeated automatically, be gone. Well, so Joseph sadly placed his arm around Mary, and Mary laid her head upon her husband's shoulder. The two of them started to move away. The innkeeper did not return inside his inn, however. Wally stood there in the doorway, watching the forlorn couple. His mouth was open, his brow creased with concern, his eyes filling unmistakably with tears. And suddenly, this Christmas pageant became different from all others. Don't go, Joseph, Wally cried out. Bring Mary back. And Wallace, and Wallace Sterling's face grew into a bright smile. You can have my room. Some people in town thought that the pageant had been ruined, yet there were others, many, many others, who considered it the most Christmas of all Christmas pageants they have ever seen. I like this book because it was fun that they switched the story up a little bit more. And I like that they turned it into a play with normal second graders. Thank you for listening.